0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations
1: about connecting and communicating. There's a thing called fluid intelligence that makes you good at what you do when you're young. Whether you're an actor or a politician or an electrician or a college professor, You get better and better in your 20s and 30s. And then it starts to get harder, and a lot of people don't realize that that's not the end. The real end of the story, or the continuation of the story, is what they get good at next. That's kind of your happiness 401k plan, what you should invest in so that you can get better and happier and actually more successful for the rest of your life.
0: That's Arthur Brooks. He's had an unusual career path from French horn player to think tank president to Harvard professor of social science. And then a conversation he overheard on a plane made him begin exploring what might make him happy later in life. He realized that the skills that made him a success when he was young weren't working so well as he approached his 60th birthday. But they've been replaced, he says, by different skills, life-enriching skills. He's laid out the ways for how to develop those skills in his new book, From Strength to Strength. This is going to be great fun for me because you pose such an interesting first thought when I encounter your work, which is that we're all going to start to decline sooner than we think. (laughs) What gives you that impression? And it's more than an impression, I know.
1: Yeah, It's something that I've noticed again and again about strivers. I I work a lot with people who are trying hard to make something of their lives. And I'm not talking about people who have a lot of money or fame necessarily. I work with electricians and and, and military members and all kinds of people that just want to do a lot with their lives. And one of the things that you notice is what makes them very good at what they do gets better and better through the 20s and 30s, but then gets harder in their 40s. Now, most people don't notice because strivers... They're at the top of their game. They're sort of the king of the mambo, but they notice. And what they notice is they like it a little bit less. It's not quite as fun. They feel a little bit burnt out. So, you know, your great dentist, he starts taking Fridays off and he says it's because he wants to learn to golf. There's more to it than that. He's not enjoying it as much as he used to because something is not as easy as it used to be. And that put me on the trail, Alan, of of, doing the research. I'm a behavioral social scientist. And I said, what's going on with the structure of the brain? And and it turns out, sure enough, there's a thing called fluid intelligence that makes you good at what you do when you're young, whether you're an actor or a politician or an electrician or a college professor. You get better and better in your 20s and 30s at innovation, at problem solving, at focus, memory, working memory. I'm sure that actors find this, that it's much easier to memorize scripts in their 20s and 30s than when they get older.
0: I, I never found it easy. So that... <laughs> <laughs> Let me try to remember that term, fluid intelligence, by understanding it a little better. What, what's fluid about it?
1: Fluid intelligence is basically your ability to reason things through quickly. So think of a flowing river. Information just goes right through that you can use it immediately, process it quickly, and move on. And so you don't have very much stored up, but you have this incredible flow of information that you know how to use, hence the fluid intelligence you can do things enormously quickly. You can figure out the solutions to problems. So the star litigator has a lot of fluid intelligence. The, the startup entrepreneur, the, the, you know, the person who's just absolutely great at you know, whatever it is, the gamer, for example, even in today's generation, they find that they have enormous amounts of fluid intelligence. The trouble is, of course, that it declines because of the structure of the prefrontal cortex, the brain. And then it starts to get harder, and a lot of people don't realize that that's not the end. And so in the course of my research, I'm not just about the fact that people in their, in their 40s and 50s, they tend to find what they were good at harder. That's not the end of the story. The real end of the story or the continuation of the story is what they get good at next. That's kind of your happiness 401k plan, what you should invest in so that you can get better and happier and actually more successful for the rest of your life. And what
0: is that? What's what's that second life?
1: There's another kind of intelligence that's, that's behind fluid intelligence that people need to know about called crystallized intelligence. That's your stock of information. That's your stock of working memory that you can now bring to bear on problems. So you find, for example, that that people are better innovators when, innovators when they're young, but they're better teachers when they're older because they know a lot and they know how to use the information that's in their heads. They have it. In it they have the New York Public Library in their head. And, and that's really incredible because when we learn how to use the vast library, that's the crystallized intelligence that makes us incredibly good at pattern recognition, managing other people, teaching other people and that increases through your 40s and 50s and 60s and stays high through your 70s and 80s and as long as you got your marbles you get that
0: so you said it's like a 401k which sounds like you have to make deposits in your 20s and 30s in (laughs) order to accomplish this second go at life how do you make those deposits
1: It's very important that we recognize that we don't stay static. And the deposits that we're making are actually making the changes that are appropriate in our lives. So just as a 401k, well, actually, it's it's not a perfect metaphor. insofar so far as a 401k plan makes, you have to sacrifice current consumption for future consumption. The 401k plan for happiness is investing in the, the institutions of your own happiness and in yourself so that you can change. And actually, you get happier and happier along the way. You get richer now and richer later, as long as you're willing to make these investments. The wrong thing to do is to live in the past. The wrong thing to do is to stay on your fluid intelligence curve and ride it all the way down into the cellar. And a lot of famous people and a lot of really hardworking people have done that. And they've wound up extremely frustrated. I talk about a lot of these people in my book, as a matter of fact.
0: So the idea is to use the the bank account that you've got at that
1: point yeah, and to add to it the things that you need to get on that second curve. Now, one of the things that you need to get on the second curve is you need real friendships. You need um, family connections that, are, and that, you can, that you can count on. You need a lot of love in your life, actually, is what it comes down to. And so that's part of your happiness 401k plan. You need to walk some sort of a transcendental walk to see things that are bigger than you. One of the biggest reasons that people can't get on the second curve is because they're so obsessively pursuing their quotidian day-to-day details of life. My job, my commute, my money, my friends, my house, me, me, me. And it's so tedious and consuming that they can't back up and say, okay, let's take stock. Here and the way to do that is really to walk a more transcendental path, whether it's traditionally religious or spiritual or simply just really philosophical. Another one is the is the the fear that people have of actually declining. I mean, the truth is, if I'm you know I'm telling people all the time, look, the fluid intelligence curve goes into decline. You're going to see decline. They don't want that. That's a form of death to strivers. Strivers are literally not afraid of dying. Their body dying, eaten eaten by worms. They're not afraid of that. What they're afraid of is being forgotten. (laughs) And it's because strivers, you know, work is everything for strivers. And so to somehow to to fail or to not be as good as they used to be is sort of their form of their form of death. So so overcoming fear is one of these, which is critically important. Um, I talk an awful lot in the book about, about about seeing weakness actually as a source of strength to connect us with other people in a very meaningful way, which is critical.
0: It's funny, I was thinking of your point about turning strength into weakness earlier today, knowing we were going to have this conversation on the podcast, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? It's pollen season, it's hitting really hard. I'm very sensitive to pollen. I have almost no voice. So (laughs) now I'm going to do a podcast with this guy who's got so many good things to say, so many interesting points to, to explore, and I can barely talk. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm going to take my weakness and turn it into a strength. I'm going to admit that I haven't got much voice today and do it anyway and not be worried, by, not be blocked by that. And I'd, so far, I think it's working.
1: I think so, too. I think you still have dulcet tones, Alan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's so terrific about One of the things that's so terrific about your writing is that you're so personal. You use yourself as a model, as an example. You're working on yourself while you're explaining to us how we can work on ourselves. It really was a striking story to know that you started out to become a French horn player and had a decline faster than you expected.
1: Yeah, no, I had, a, I had a, an early decline, that's for sure. I, I got a little bit of expertise in losing your skills a lot earlier than I wanted to. I, I started off as a classical musician when I was 19 years old, is when I started my career. And, and I toured as a chamber musician. I toured for a couple of years with a jazz guitar player named Charlie Bird. And then I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony. And as I was moving my way through my 20s, it became really clear that I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse, and and it was a real crisis of identity. I have to say, I mean, I and when I was when I was a young man, I thought to myself, I don't want to, I don't want to live if I can't play music because the only thing I wanted to do, and I had to come to grips with that because I had a long life ahead of me, and I was married, and and you know I was starting my family, and I thought, well, I guess I better just suck it up, as the kids these days, as my adult kids like to say. So now, and what does that mean? I don't know. I'll just, just I guess I'll just give up. And and I gave up and did something I didn't want to do, particularly which was to go back to school, went to college, and and then reluctantly went and, into my family's business, which is being coming an academic. My father was a professor, and my grandfather was a professor, so I got my doctorate and became a professor, which wound up being just the most wonderful thing ever. Just I just love the world of ideas. i it. I'm I, I get to be a behavioral social scientist about happiness. I get to bring happiness to people.
0: So. It's a wonderful story, and I'm sure everybody asks you to tell the story of what drove you to do the research that resulted in this book, Hmm. which is that moment on the airplane when you heard the couple behind you. Yeah. Because what's interesting about that is, again, you use yourself as the learner of what you're teaching and you were in a, the perfect spot at that moment in your life to hear that couple behind you and reflect on your own life, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. As a social scientist, the beautiful thing is in my laboratory is any place where I overhear human conversation. <laughs> so, so if, you know, be careful if you're behind me on the airplane; it might, it might wind <laughs> right. up in a book. <laughs> so. And I was on, as I tell in the book, I was uh, was flying in from between Los Angeles and Washington, Dulles Airport. And it was late. It was what I was doing because I was the CEO of this think tank in Washington, DC and flying from place to place, giving a lot of speeches and raising money and doing all the things that people who run nonprofits do. But I was thinking this is pretty unsustainable. I was in my late 40s at the time. I didn't I, I, didn't, I didn't especially like what I was doing, not because it was, it was not a good job, but because I was burnt out, and I was tired of it. And quite frankly, and I didn't know it at the time, I was in the wrong place on my fluid intelligence curve to be mm. doing that. And I was thinking, this is completely unsustainable. And at that time, just at the right time, I heard a conversation of a couple behind me on the plane. And I could tell by their voices that they were elderly, and it was a man and a woman. And I suppose they were married because it was very intimate. And subsequently, I found out they were married at the time. And the husband was explaining to the wife that he might as well be dead, and his wife was consoling him. Oh, it's, don't, it don't say that; it's not true. And then he would go on and say, "Nobody remembers me. You know, I used to be somebody, but..." and And I kept thinking to myself, "This is probably somebody who was a maybe an eighth grade teacher who was forced to retire, and he's disappointed with his life." And I had this kind of biography in my head. And, and when the lights came on and we all stood up and I was curious, so I turned around, it wound up being one of the most famous, powerful men in the world, a real hero from the 1960s and 1970s for you know events long past, but still extremely well-known and very rich and very successful. I mean, look, Alan, he's going to do 10 times as much as with his life than I am. But I'm thinking to myself, look, if what he did is no guarantee of his satisfaction and happiness, the whole model's wrong. The whole model's wrong. Because the model says basically, go be successful, kill it, um, bank it, die happy. But that's not the way it works at all. I mean, you're you're always asking yourself, what have you done? What have I done for me lately? That's not the model of satisfaction says that we have to have something going on all the time. And and you know, past events and the fame and 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 the adulation of other people, that's not gonna do it. And so I actually went in search of what had happened, not specifically to him, but to strivers in general. And I found indeed that people who do a lot early on in life, they tend to be, they tend to struggle more than ordinary people when they're older. And part of the reason is because it's hard to live up to your own expectations, <laughs> number one. And number two, look, if you never do anything with your life, you won't know when it's over. But if you do a lot with your life, what goes up must come down. And if it goes up really high and then it comes down, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to take. That's sort of this law of psychoprofessional gravitation. It's not fun. It hurts when it's over. So I thought to myself, that's why we need to understand what's the cadence of our strengths. Is there a second success curve? What is the set of investments that we can actually make? And that was the beginning of this that was the beginning of this uh, this research which by the way was me search I wanted to know the answer for me, and I didn't want to be explaining to my wife when I'm in my late 80s on the airplane, my wife, my <laughs> long-suffering wife Esther, that I might as well be dead. You know, she doesn't yeah. she deserves better than that. And so I did the research and I didn't intend to publish it, actually. I, I meant to do it for myself. But when I was really convinced I was on the right track, that these are the habits of the happiest people as they get older, the happiest people in their 60s and 70s and 80s. That, that my wife convinced me that I should probably publish it. Who knows? Maybe somebody might like to hear about this as well. The the idea
0: that teaching what you know to move from doing it in the fast flow of your competence to teaching it to others and bringing them along. The, the problem for some people, it seems to me, is that that doesn't sound like an attractive position to put yourself in when you think of the position you're you're leaving, not of your own will, but because of your declining powers. Right. You know, the, the phrase, well, you can always teach doesn't ring a bell with a lot of people. Yeah.
1: So yeah, it's what, not as sexy. What,
0: how does that stand in the way? How can that be overcome?
1: Yeah, that's really a question of humility and service is what you find. And so the people who've cracked this code and do it well, of which I actually show a few in this book, um, I talk about Johann Sebastian Bach, Maybe the greatest composer who ever lived, who, who went from the star composer of the high Baroque, the greatest musical innovator of his age, to, to being overtaken by musical styles really left behind and unable to innovate according to the musical styles that were being propagated by his own children. And by the way, he had 20 kids, so he was a pretty productive guy and and in the second half of his life he rebuilt his whole career as the greatest teacher of his generation and wound up much happier than he'd ever been because this was the humility that came from serving other people that intense satisfaction that comes from serving others as opposed to serving oneself that that really is the consolation of age if we choose to take it it's interesting because you know I'm a much better professor now than I was 20 years ago much better i mean i can explain way more complex ideas than I could before. And yet I can't do the research that I was able to do before. So I'm looking for ways that my teaching isn't just a throwaway. It's not just a a consolation prize. On the contrary, my teaching is in the pages of the Atlantic and and writing books for groups of people and and talking to Alan Alda on on this podcast. This is teaching. And, And by the way, you're teaching too. So you've gone from performance to teaching in very important ways as well. And it has these just intense satisfactions that come with it and much, much greater sort of cosmic and metaphysical success. But we have to let go of a particular self-image that's especially self-absorbed.
0: When we come back from our break, Arthur Brooks tells me how valuing the crystallized intelligence of older people isn't only good for them, it's good for society. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's P A T R E O N.com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Arthur Brooks. We're talking about his new book, From Strength to Strength. I realized as I read the book, I was reading my biography. <laughs>
1: That's very interesting. I would love to hear more. So, I mean, if you had read that book when you were in your 20s, would it have resonated at all?
0: No, the, the interesting thing, the one the one thing that didn't quite jibe for me was that I didn't start to get really good at the skill that most people consider my, my accomplishment, my acting and writing. I didn't get really good at that till way after 35. Hmm. Hmm. And there you were running out of steam in your twenties.
1: Of one, yeah, yeah. What I ran out of my steam is as doing mathematical treatises as an economist. That was my real fluid intelligence curve, and that was declining through my in my in my early forties, right on time. And
0: I've read that you 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 now look back at some of the math you did then and have trouble following it.
1: I can't read it. It's it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> it's impenetrable. But then again, I, I, I see the writing that I did. So writing is a fundamentally a crystallized intelligence discipline. Um, and, and what you find particularly, so the writing that you've done, the writing that you were doing in your 40s and 50s that we're all familiar with, was very crystallized in its outlook because you were explaining ideas in a very coherent way. So my guess is that you were pretty much on time as well. Um, now, not every like we like to say in the economics profession, your results may differ. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but everybody follows these cadences is the bottom line. And, and if, we, if we're willing to conform our lives and our interests and our loves and our affection to these particular cadences, then the world is really ours. But if we fight against them, if we want to keep our groove, if the star litigator at 60 wants to continue to keep up with the young guys, it's a big mistake. Yeah. You know, and, and every profession has the ability to go from fluid to crystallized. So the star litigator becomes the managing partner who forms the team that tasks the young people to do these incredible things, who becomes the teacher. Or the startup entrepreneur becomes a venture capitalist who chooses between startup entrepreneurs and picks really good projects. Or the researcher becomes the master professor. By the way. At my university, where I teach at at Harvard University, uniformly the best teaching evaluations go to professors over 70. Mm. You know, so it's, it's happiness for the rest of us. That's all I can say.
0: You made me wonder as I read this, is this decline and the need to go into another curve, is this related to the famous midlife crisis that we always hear about?
1: Yeah. So the midlife crisis that we often hear about is pretty interesting because only about 15% of people have a midlife crisis, but everybody has a midlife change.
0: Hmm. And,
1: and there's a, a big literature out there that looks at the natural progression of happiness as we get older. Uh, so I ask my students, my students are on average about 27 years old because they're MBA students. And I'll say, okay, imagine yourself in 10 years. Are you going to be happier or unhappier? And they all say happier. So I say, how come? I say, well, they say my, my life is going to be figured out. My family situation will be resolved, and I'll be my student loans will be paid off, and I'll you know I'll be making more money. They'll be working at Goldman Sachs or something fancy like that. I say, okay. Now, how about how about ten years after that? You're forty-seven. They say, well, probably even a little bit better. Okay, then I say, how about seventy-seven? They say, I don't want that. And, and I say, why not? And they say, I don't know. It just I don't it doesn't sound fun to be old. Is basically what they say. I say, okay. Let's look at the data. And I've got the data. I have data on literally millions of people in virtually every country and it's the same. And the data show that people gradually decline in their happiness from their early 20s to their early 50s. Not a lot, but they don't get happier. They generally get a little bit unhappier for a bunch of different reasons from some physiological reasons to having teenage kids to all kinds of things that are not great for your happiness. But then in the early 50s, almost everybody starts getting happier, and they get happier all the way through to their late 60s or even early 70s, and then it breaks up into two groups. Half the population continues getting happier all the way to the end, and the other half starts getting unhappier again, and they fall all the way to the end. So the question is, you know, how do we get on the upper branch? What do we do earlier? What do we invest in earlier to get on the upper branch and avoid the lower branch? And the key thing, the striver's curse is it the people who are working so hard to be successful early on, not paying attention to these trends, not paying attention to fluid and crystallized intelligence or, or all the other things that go with it, like needing relationships and love and a transcendental walk. They're the ones who experience a lot of success early on and the lower branch later. I tell the story of Charles Darwin, who started off as just the king of science when he was a young man in his 20s. And by the time he was in his early 70s, he felt really disappointed with his life because he never was able to get on that second curve. Now when you're declining on that, that, that fluid intelligence curve, that's when people, they don't like it. People don't like it. They find it uncomfortable. And, and if you're going to have a crisis, that's when you're going to have it. The crisis is going to be maybe if you're in your early 50s and you're still trying to cling to the past to what you used to be really, really good at. And that's very frustrating. That 15% of the part of the population usually that were great at what they did started to decline, didn't recognize there was a second curve and tried to stay on the first curve. That's the, that's the, the recipe for a big midlife crisis.
0: The culture is also losing out, I gather, from what you've written. By not making use of people who are in this second curve, good at it, have something to contribute to everybody else, but they're left out because, like your students, they're thought of as not desirable in their 70s.
1: Yeah, this is a big problem in the the American economy. It's a big problem in the world economy that we're too geared in on fluid intelligence. We've kind of turned the keys over to the economy over to engineers, and, you know, technocrats, mm-hmm. and people who have a lot of this fluid intelligence, this innovative capacity, you know, big entrepreneurs. And the problem with that is that it's they they do a lot, they innovate a lot. The problem is they don't have wisdom. Your your crystallized intelligence curve is your wisdom curve. If you look at what's going on in tech today, if you look at what's going on in social media today, you find that there's a lot of whiz-bang ideas, but there's not a lot of wisdom. You know, when I talk to executives who are over seventy, they just shake their heads at the stupid mistakes that these young people are making in the tech sector. You know, they're making products that hurt people. They're engaged in anti-competitive practices. They have cultures that are toxic um, toward, you know, women, for example, in the in a lot of these companies. And, and you know, anybody over seventy doesn't matter what their ideology is; they wouldn't make these errors because these are just unforced easy to avoid errors. And so my view is that what this country needs, what the world really needs is more old people. Is more <laughs> old people in professions that of leadership. Every executive team in America needs at least one over 70 executive. Every product team, every marketing team, you know people who've come up think about it Alan, you've been through the school of hard knocks. I bet you just, you can't believe the dumb mistakes that people make (laughs) all
0: the time. (laughs) Well, I think of uh, how nature has made use of older people, too. Why do we need to live past the age of reproduction? The reason is so we can have the wisdom of grandparents who say, maybe you shouldn't play with that snake.
1: (laughs) That's right. And if you think about it, it's sort of, there's a theory that shows that one of the reasons that that society has massively advanced. I mean, there's just, the world is just so much better than it used to be. We, we, it's, it's very easy to be negative, you know, woe is us because things are so bad. Well, you know, literacy has been, has been, is down by about 90% over what it was 200 years ago. Um, we've, we've, we've eliminated 80% of starvation level poverty since you and I were kids. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible miracle, and a lot of this came about precisely because longevity increased, and we had more old people around, who basically had this all of this, this this memory of things past, this crystallized intelligence, this wisdom, an ability to say what we know and pass it on to future generations. If you go back to a time when the average, you know, time of death was 38 years old or something, <laughs> nobody actually has can can teach anything. You know, you you learn something again and again anew every single generation. It's pretty hard to advance. It's pretty hard to make progress under those circumstances.
0: It is kind of funny that the country that's doing so much to keep people alive longer is making less use of that at an increasing rate. Right. Why do you suppose that is?
1: What I'd like to do, and one of the things that I'm really interested in because of this research, is that that older people, and I'm talking about really people over 70, have just so much to add. Now, not everybody has the capacity to do it. You know, some people lose their, their capacities. Some people lose cognitive ability. But most don't anymore. And what I'd like to do is not just to create an appreciation. This is not charity, by the way. This is a way to save the country. You know, we're, we're eating ourselves alive in a lot of the ways that we're you're using technology. We're finding that, that happiness in the United States is falling every year. As social media actually takes over more and more of our social interactions, people are getting more lonely. Suicide is increasing. Drug use is increasing. Uh, mental health problems are increasing. And you have to assume it's because people aren't using their heads. Hmm. People aren't using their crystallized intelligence to say, It turns out that if you're lonely, you shouldn't get on social media. You should call a friend and then take out your bike and go outside and get some sunshine and all the stuff that your grandma would have told you. And increasingly, Alan and Arthur are going to tell you to do. This is really important.
0: (laughs) It says in the Declaration of Independence that we all have the right the pursuit of happiness yeah what's the best way to get to happiness and is that correct that we should pursue it like that
1: yeah it's very interesting and that was a that was enlightenment thinking thomas jefferson was asked why he wrote that in the declaration of independence and he said it was a an expression of the american mind he mm. basically was taking dictation from benjamin franklin that's <laughs> yeah. what was really going on and yeah. benjamin franklin thought that the secret to happiness was was defining it and pursuing it, and that was the right. It didn't. He didn't say that we're going to find it because it's an elusive thing. But the the progress toward the goal of building our life like an enterprise, building our life with the the, the radical equality of human dignity. We're all brothers and sisters with just no exceptions. That we have to lift each other up, and we have to see our life as an adventure. That's that's really what that aspiration was. It took a long time for us to get to the point where we could make a claim that we're living up to that aspiration. You know I mean? Even Benjamin Franklin had slaves in his household, for example, and, and the rights of women were you know, still more than 100 years off. But the truth is that that basic philosophy was very, very powerful because what it did was it, it vacuumed up people from all over the world that wanted to be in this chase. For the idea that they could be happier people, that they could construct their lives. I mean the, you know, my guess is that the, the the Alda family was not landed gentry when they came to the United States. They were probably, you know, running from some godforsaken shtetl or they were peasants or something someplace. They were. And they came yeah they, were. yeah. they came here for a reason. Yeah. And yeah. Th- that was incredibly magnetic. That was incredibly attractive to people all over the world. But that's
0: so much so often translated into material success. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and we assume that and nobody turns down material success. Right. But if that's your whole goal, and if you think that being either rich or famous is going to satisfy you, you're barking up the wrong tree,
1: I find. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a ton of research that shows exactly that. You know, it's, uh, that, that there's four goals that people think will bring them satisfaction and that never do. Money, power, pleasure, and fame. Those are the things that people think are gonna bring them satisfaction. The only things that will bring you lasting and, and reliable satisfaction are faith, family, friendship, and work that serves other people. So there's the bad for, there's the instrumental There's looking, there's nothing wrong with money. The problem is if you seek money for the sake of money. The good things, the goals that we should have, the real things in our bucket list, should be faith, and I, by that I don't mean a traditional religious faith. It, that, that you know that depends on you know wh- whether it's a, a secular philosophy or a meditation practice. Something bigger than us, hmm. family life, where the ties that bind and don't break, and that we didn't choose, and God knows we wouldn't choose them in many cases. But those are the people that will take your two a.m. phone call, your friendship. Which strivers have very few of. They have a lot of deal friends, but not so many real friends. And we all know the difference between those two. And work that is not just a means of making money, but is actually the satisfaction, comes from the satisfaction of truly earning your success and serving other people who need you. Those are the four secrets, is what it comes down to. And, and those are the things that we need to be acquiring and working toward. If there is a 401k plan for happiness, really, that's it.
0: Well that's a perfect point to come to our conclusion because we're running out of time and the the, <laughs> the, 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 the meaning burst to the surface at just the right time. Mm-hmm. We always end our show though with seven quick questions All some right. of which you've already answered they, they're generally in a rough way to do with communication but they're also to do with your with your work in some ways. First question what do you wish you really understood hmm.
1: I wish I really understood the, the, the man I'm trying to be. It's, uh, you know, it's, I've been searching and searching and I guess Benjamin Franklin would have said, yeah, that's your pursuit of happiness. But at some point, I hope I can actually find the person that I'm supposed to be. I wish I knew, and I hope I can find it.
0: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Hmm.
1: You start by admitting that you might not be right. (laughs) In other words, to be persuasive, you have to be persuadable.
0: Great, great. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: <laughs> um, are you starting to lose your hair? <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if they
0: can't, they can't see you. But. We, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're without the aid of hair mostly right now
1: it, mostly but unfortunately that was the weirdest question i heard when i was about 19 years old <laughs> how do
0: you stop a compulsive talker
1: <laughs> um i haven't i haven't figured out the answer to that one yet i have to say and probably that means that i'm the compulsive talker so now you have me worried
0: <laughs> it's a problem that everybody asks the question to has a hard time answering it's an interesting social situation to be in because it, it goes against all the instincts you have, which if you have the instinct to connect, you want them to connect, but they, they don't seem to. Yeah. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table and you're next to someone you've never met before. How do you start up a, a real conversation?
1: I ask a personal question. I will often ask a question like, tell me about the last time that you cried. Huh. And they usually will answer me.
0: Wow, it starts sobbing, no doubt
1: sometimes, wow. sometimes. and the reason I ask that is because, as my wife likes to say, "Go deep or go home," <laughs> life is too short for boring conversations about trivialities.
0: I feel the same way. It took me a long time to learn how to make small talk.
1: I bet you've had to do a lot of it,
0: yeah, as little as possible <laughs> Next That's to why you last. do
1: this show, because this is a pretty deep show. Yeah, you're right.
0: This gives me a lot of pleasure, satisfaction, too. Okay, next to last question. What gives you confidence?
1: I have, well, confidence comes from two sources, optimism and hope. I'm not optimistic, because I can't tell the future, but I'm hopeful, and hope means there's something that can be done and I can do it. I've dedicated my life to lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love using my ideas. That's why I have hope. And that gives me confidence that the world can be better than it, in the future than it is right now.
0: It's so interesting. It's so not how I see it. I don't have much hope that things will get better.
1: Well, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but I am hopeful because I think there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot that we can do. My confidence comes from hope, not optimism. That's my point. Optimism is a sense of agency. It's a sense that, that Alan and Arthur can do a lot, that we can lift up people from the margins, that we can make life better for at least somebody. And that's really a source of confidence for me that I actually can do something. I can do something valuable. And that gets me up in the morning.
0: Hope seems to me to ignore the idea that reality is happening I get great strength from just accepting reality. Reality is my friend, as yeah. horrible as it is.
1: Yeah. Well, sometimes it's horrible and sometimes it's not, but the truth is that pain is a transcendental thing. One of the things that, one of the great consolations of age is that we realize that suffering is sacred and and that we don't find any meaning or purpose unless we actually unless we suffer and learn from it, unless there's trauma and we grow as a result of that. One of the biggest mistakes that my students make and that most young people today make is that they're spending a lot of their time simply trying to avoid suffering, a lot of their energy trying to avoid suffering. And Hmm. that's a huge mistake. I mean, my guess is, Alan, if if I said, and this is one of the questions I would ask, you know, if if we met each other for the first time at a dinner party, I would say, you know, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? What's the worst thing that ever happened to you? And then what did you learn from it? and and i would lo- i would want to know about your growth about the superpowers that you actually got from that so under those circumstances i think that that embracing everything being fully alive for the good and the bad is one of the secrets to life in full
0: well said I, i'm with you last question what book changed your life
1: there've been a Bunch, but one of the books that I've read over the past 10 years that I can't stop I can't put down in my mind is a book by a an anonymous Russian monk called the way of a pilgrim that talks about walking around Russia saying one single prayer <laughs> And it's a metaphor for a life well lived which doesn't stop which is peripatetic which is going from place to place, which is serving everybody that we can possibly find and just saying the prayer and then having an adventure on the basis of it. So the way of a pilgrim is the book that has probably affected me more than any other single book over the past 10 years.
0: Well, your book has affected me and I'm sure it's going to affect everybody who, who reads it. I thank you. Thank for you. Your, thank you for the introspection, which led to the writing of the book and the research that confirmed your your wonderful notions about how we work and how we can get better. It's just terrific. Thank you so much, Arthur. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Alan. Thank you for your beautiful show, which is lifting so many people up and thank you for what you're doing and the love that you have for others.
0: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Arthur Brooks is a professor at both the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School. He previously ran the American Enterprise Institute for a decade. Author of a dozen books and a columnist for The Atlantic, his new book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Meaning, Success, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with husband and wife Ed Young and Liz Neely. They're both champions in communicating science and connecting with their audiences. And their marriage had a storybook beginning. It was the nerdiest rom-com story. (laughs) We actually met at a science communication conference. So, you know, classic boy meets girl at a sci-com conference story.
1: Someone missed a plane,
0: and it meant that I got to step into their spot to facilitate A workshop with Ed, and I had strong feelings and opinions, as I usually do. Mm -hmm. And from there, I think we had a series of productive arguments over years. (laughs) How those productive arguments have helped shape both Ed Young and Liz Neely's skills as communicators, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.